It's Light the Tower, your daily look around the world of sports with Hall of Fame broadcaster and voice of the Texas Longhorns, Craig Way. And Horns 24-7 insider, Jeff Howe. On your live, local, and independent home for sports talk in Austin, The Horn. Light it up on a Thursday from Austin, Texas. Not just any Thursday. It's May 4th. May the 4th be with you for those Star Wars fans out there. It's also a big day on the high school ranks because by district baseball playoffs get underway tonight across the state of Texas. I'm Cameron Parker. Craig Way is on his way to Lawrence, Kansas for Texas baseball series against the Jayhawks. Jeff Howe is en route and joining us in the studio. He's the producer of Mornings with Bucky and Aaron. And he also co-hosted the Texas post-game spring game broadcast with me a few weeks ago. It's Ty Henderson. Ty, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Cam. How are you? You have your coffee yet this morning? Um, I'm three cups deep, about to get my fourth. So we discussed last week that you don't like drinking hot coffee. You don't like drinking cold energy drinks because you like to chug it, right? I'm a chugger, yeah. Okay. When it comes, I mean, any alcoholic beverage too, really. You just chug. You just shotgun it? Yeah, well, when I I went to Texas Tech for a very short time, my freshman year of college, um, the, 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 the main thing I learned there was the scoop and score. Have you yeah. ever heard of it, where you scoop out all the ice out of a drink, and then you yeah. sc- chug it, score it? Yeah. And I've kind of I've taken that I've taken that um, to new levels. Yeah. Do you uh, participate in uh, May Fourth? May the Fourth oh, yeah. be with you. Big okay, time. so you're a big Star Wars guy. Oh yeah. Give, give me give me your rundown on uh, your favorite Star Wars movies because I know the Specs text line at five one two. Three three seven three seven seven six. It's got to be some big Star Wars fans. Yeah, I mean the original trilogy. Uh, those three will always um, be the best for me. I mean, it could be any any one of the three on any day. I could call the best. They're all great. Um, and then the next three, you know, the prequels that came out when we were, you know, a little bit younger mm-hmm. and growing up. I, I really like those. Uh, but as time as time went on, I kind of realized that episode one and two may, maybe weren't the best, and maybe yeah. kind of played towards uh, kids more. You yeah. know, with the whole Jar Jar Binks and such. Uh, but yeah, the, the, I mean, the first six I love. I've watched a little bit of the Mandalorian, um, a few, one or two of the newer Star Wars movies, but I, I haven't completely bought into the new ones yet. Yeah, the the newest trilogy. Uh, I mean, when you have three different directors for each one and three different writers, like the storylines just didn't make any sense. And I, I'm still hung up on the fact that they brought the Emperor back in the trailer the last movie it's like they didn't you had two movies to kind of set up his return we're going to actually just going to release it in the trailer by the way it's yeah like, that's, that's that seems silly are you, are you a fan of any of the star wars like video games um i know there's a new one that just came out uh let's see i played so was it battle battlefield battlefront battlefront yeah big battlefront fan i had the original xbox on that yeah that one that even when they best. re-released it on the xbox one enjoyed that lego star wars growing up as a kid of course um you, you can't beat any Lego games, Lego of Star Wars, Lego Indiana Jones. Prop, I'm not going to lie. I did play the new Lego Star Wars that came out this year. Good. 
I yeah, I mean for for what it is, it's a, it's a fun play. Something about like knocking down the crap and it releasing the coins is just like satisfying. It's it's like ASMR, and it's like, kind of funny. Like the storylines are funny. Too. Yeah, it's kind of like playing Minecraft where it's just like minimal brain activity is involved in it. You can just kind of sit back and relax. It's kind of just like watching your favorite TV shows. Uh, Specs text line already chiming in. Star Wars for me is like the fast movies for you, Cam. Never seen one movie of Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen Fast and Furious either. Thank you. Okay, so me and you on the same page because they've made about seventy of them. Yeah, I'm like uh, they must they must be all right. I, I've just not, I'm not a big car guy. Okay, I do I yeah. do have a newfound love for NASCAR. Thank you, Rodney Rodriguez, if you're oh, out there okay, listening. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, I've watched a lot of NASCAR in the past month, but car movies, not so. I still don't know much about cars or like when I you know you hear all these making. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it 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 doesn't really interest me. Let's Never put has. a pin in this. Um, who's your favorite driver right now in the NASCAR level? Do you, do you have one yet? Or you're still trying to fill it out. Um, I man, I know I wax. So Wags has tried to got, get me into Martin Truex Jr. He won me some money this week. Yeah, I like and pretty much anyone that's won me money. Kyle Busch. I know everyone hates him, but mm-hmm. I pick him almost every week because okay. he seems like he's up there. Yeah. Um, and I kind of do like liking people that everyone hates. So I, I'm right now, Kyle Busch or Almondinger. Okay, I would I would peg you as a. Ross Chastain. Yes, I do like I do like Ross Chastain. He's talking about guys who are hated. Um, every week there is some sort of issue with Ross Chastain pissing off some other drivers. So I feel like you would like Chastain. Martin Truex Jr. He's about to retire. I think this might be his last season, if not next year. And then Kyle Busch. Yeah. See, he, you know, you know more about NASCAR than I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I, I grew up in Charlotte. The, yeah. Okay. So you're that's, that's I grew up going seven, to the huh? track. I grew up going to the track and, and tailgating with Bojangles, Sweet Tea, and, and Bud Light. So I, I I grew up on the hillbilly. I had that hillbilly side of me, the redneck side of me from my mom's. Side I still have. I I really I haven't been one of, to one of the races out here for NASCAR yeah. yet. But I've heard Texas Motor Speedway, like you bring yeah. your own cooler, yeah, fill it up, tailgate, post game in the parking lot after. I hear it's a great time. A lot of my friends enjoy that. I, I need to make it up there. The frustrating part about the race at Coda is that I haven't been yet because it's the same weekend as the Dell Match Play. Yeah. Yeah, that was the issue this year. And NASCAR, they knew that, and they still scheduled it well, for some we reason. we won't have to worry about that exactly. next year. Unfortunately so. and fortunately. So next year I'm excited to get out there with uh, with uh, Stu Plex Stu and, and Rodney Rodriguez and finally take in a, a stock car race at Coda because I've been there for IndyCar. I haven't been there yet for F1. Um, that would probably cost me my entire life savings to get a ticket to the F1 race. You been out to F1 yet at all time? Um, very briefly, like when they first started doing it out there, but I haven't, I haven't made it back since I know, I, I still haven't watched any F1. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't watch Drive to Survive on Netflix. Yeah. It's kind of been sitting there on my, yeah. on my, my, like my queue of stuff I need to watch, but uh, just, same with the golf series too. Just never, never started it. I feel like it's too late now. I don't know if it's too late. Um, cause I started, I was not into F1 until 2021 because of Drive to Survive. Uh, they're actually racing in Miami this week. And for for the golf stuff, I mean, you can get in that anytime. And I know you you've kind of watched and bet on golf for F one. It's I mean they, they release the season every year, so I feel like you can still get into it, and you can kind of just uh, you know binge your way through it. But for the most part, it gets repetitive. Like once you kind of like really get into F one in, in the in the aspect of it, like it gets repetitive because they basically pull the same coach from the same drivers every every season. It's still a good show if you have no idea what's going on in the F1. The same thing for, for the golf one. As like a golf nerd, 
that show was not was not made for me. It's it was it's made, made for people that don't even have no idea about, what's yeah. going on. You know, every episode they they mention the cut and how the cut works and what a bogey and what yeah, a birdie is. I, like, all right, we we can skip past this. You have access to you have access to the live PGA stuff. Like, I want to see that. I don't. I know what a cut is. You you don't have to explain what the cut is. Are they making another season of that? I show? think so. I think so. Do you think that the next season will be more? Uh, I mean, with well, Drive to Survive, it's it's like you. It's the same thing. It's just like you know they'll, they'll interview a driver and it's like yeah, I really want to win. It's like really, like that's ground and they'll they'll just you know it's like when you're in the car, there's nothing like it. You know, it's the same stuff every single episode, so it gets a little bit repetitive. But um, excited for Miami F1 this week and excited to be able to finally get out to Coda. But uh, Ty, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. No problem. Coming up, Jeff Howe will be joining us in studio. We got some big basketball news in the Big Twelve front. But it's not about Texas. Craig Way and Jeff Howe light the tower. Hour number one of Light the Tower on the horn. Jeff Howe, Cameron Parker, Craig Way out today. Craig is on his way to Lawrence for that Texas-Kansas baseball series. We'll get into that tomorrow. Cam, thanks to you and, and Tyrus for sitting in. Of course. I uh, heard you guys talking NASCAR. So you've been to NASCAR races, yes? I grew up with them, baby. Okay. So we got a Longhorn Notebook coming up here in just a few minutes. Inconceivable to close out hour number one. And then a Longhorn Notebook and our Flex update. Coming up next hour. One of my most regrettable sports experiences ever was not going to a NASCAR race. Okay. So this would have been 2006. If I'm thinking, if I believe it was. I, I think I'm correct about the year. It was the spring race at Texas. And one of my college buddies, his dad had won, I think it was f- five, five or six passes to uh, like a VIP experience to the, to the, uh, to the spring race. Mm-hmm. at TMS. And it was like they got an RV to drive them up there. It stayed in the infield, the whole deal. And at the time, I can say this now because um, the company no longer exists except for one store in Bend, Oregon. I was working at Blockbuster at the oh, time. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, Blockbuster is one of those places that, you know, as long as you can get somebody to cover your shift, they didn't really care if yeah. you, you know, took the weekend off or whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, I've covered for people on the weekends, and you know, nobody needs to go know I'm going to NASCAR. So this is, you know, I'm. I think I got a really good chance of of doing this. This should be a piece of cake. Well, that unfortunately was one weekend that the manager was like, yeah, we're not having anybody switch shifts that weekend. I'm like, why? Well, because so and so was out of town, and so and so had a wedding to go to. So if you're scheduled, you can't get off. Oh. So I tell my buddies, I'm like, dudes, I. I I can't go. So I ended up staying back that weekend. So it was uh, three of my, two of my college roommates, one of my buddies, his dad, and a couple other people ended up going. And they get there like, or like for qualifying and the Bush Series racing, the whole deal, right? It's all weekend. And the voicemails I was getting, this is back when people still answered, checked their voicemail. 
the voicemails I was getting throughout the weekend, <laughs> they were progressively drunker and drunker and drunker to the point by like the time Sunday rolled around, the voice messages were inaudible. Like I could not understand what was being said on the voicemails. Were so, you able to save any of those? No, no, no. That was like three or four phones ago. Oh, man. So, dude, it was they and the stories they still tell whenever we get together, the stories they still tell about that weekend. It just hurts me a little bit because I'm like, I missed out on what is now known in my circle of friends as the NAS holiday. Yeah, the NAS. I like it. Oh, man. Just kills me. So, did, did they uh, like rent an RV and hang out in the infield? No, what that's was the thing. There? So, the, the, the radio is a radio station in Houston, and like the radio station rented them an RV wow. and, and like parked it in the infield. Like the whole, the whole deal, man. It was. It was awesome. It, it's it's a really fun experience. I know people get hung up with like you know oh we're, they're just turning left and everything, but it's it's like you can if you go. I mean, it's more about like the experience because you get there early. Yeah. You, it's kind of like a football game. You start tailgating, and if you're in the infield, I mean, there's nothing like it because you you're seeing everyone come in. You're seeing all the the pre race ceremonies and stuff, the actual race, the post race celebrations. You got your teeth. I mean, people come in. They bring like inflatable pools and stuff. They're hanging out. The way so Chris Dukes, uh, again, one time statesman employee, uh, now with uh, CBS Sports, one of my best friends ever. The way he has explained it to me, and the way that I understand it, and Cam, you can tell me if I'm dead wrong, but the way he described it, I'm like, okay, so it's basically like an SEC home football game on steroids. It's basically what an NASCAR weekend is like. Yeah. I would think so because like everybody's got the the grills out and everybody's cooking and you know everyone's sharing food and sharing beverage and it's a lot just, of white just, people. It is one just big, huge, gigantic party. A lot of white people, a lot of country music. Yeah, so yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that, and I would say, uh, yeah, and probably the same amount of fights that break out. Uh, my my favorite experience was the first year I went went for qualifying. And my dad took me, and we're sitting in. We're sitting in turn one, and Kyle Busch, he was still driving the M&M's 18 car for Joe Gibbs Racing. He comes out, and there's a guy in front of me. You know, he's probably on his fifth. Did Kyle Busch drive the five for Hendrick at one point in time? Um, Actually, I, I or think you're right. Or was that Kurt right. Busch? No, Kurt Busch. Kurt Busch drove the Miller Lite Dodge. Yes, he was. Yes. He, he raced for Penske. He drove the, yeah. he the Miller Lite. Um, I think you're right about that for a little bit. Bush comes out. He does a qualifying lap. There's a guy in front of me. You know, you can tell he's he's out of his mind. And as every time Kyle Bush would drive around, he would raise both his middle fingers up and just follow him around the track. And that was my first ever introduction to NASCAR. I was like, yeah, I like this. I like this a lot. On that NAS holiday, though, there's there's so many of those stories I can't tell on the air. Oh, I bet. But one does involve the guys. I think this was Saturday night walking around on the infield and walking by someone's trailer and uh, a lady who, let's just say, was under the influence, steps out of her trailer Mm. and after some quick dialogue looks at one of my buddies and asks, and I quote, where's the meth? (laughs) And they knew that was was their cue to get out of there. Oh, my and just God. Go somewhere. Else. Where's the meth? Where's the meth? Yeah. There's so much of that. That This thing about that, Cam, that's the cleanest part of that story that I can tell. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked, Jeff, what blockbuster did you work at? I was a store manager at multiple stores in South Austin. I worked at uh, the uh, 
Georgetown, what was the Georgetown 2 location up by Sun City, kind of by Craig's HEB, the uh, uh, D.B. Wood Road HEB. It was in that shopping center. Uh, also, I think I worked a couple of shifts at the the old Georgetown one, which is kind of in that uh, shopping center. I don't even know what's there anymore. There used to be a subway there, and there was like a haircut place. Uh, kind of, and I don't even know if Shortstop is there anymore, but it was in that shopping center right off of uh, – Pretty much right at Williams Drive and Austin Avenue. I worked at the San Marcos one for a little bit. And then uh, my last location of employment was the Buda location. So you had a cup of coffee at, at Blockbuster then? I was there for a few years, yeah. Wow. I, it was one of those deals I'd, I'd, uh, I'd quit and then heard, heard they were hurting for help and didn't take much to get me hired back. Man. I, I Blockbuster was, was one of my favorite spots growing up because – I loved being able to rent movies because we didn't we didn't have a huge we didn't have cable growing up barely mm-hmm. any TV so it was always go to the blockbuster and when Redbox came around ninety nine cent movies <sighs> dude the uh, the hardest thing though to explain to people was the and and I was what I was watching I think it was the Netflix documentary on Blockbuster they have a sitcom too right they do but this was like the documentary is like the downfall of Blockbuster I, I think it might have been called. Be kind, please rewind. I think might have been the name of it, but it's basically when Blockbuster instituted the no late fees policy, and basically pretty much how that went a long way towards killing Blockbuster. Really? Yeah, I was I was working at Blockbuster at that time. They were doing the whole no late fees bit. What, what was the late fee like? Ninety nine cents or something? Something. Then it depended on how old the movie was, and then there used to be back in the day. Some people, some video stores would charge you a late fee if like you didn't rewind your VHS tape yeah. all the way. They'd charge you like that rewinding fee. Um but it was like if it was past a certain number of days, you could either pay a dollar twenty five restocking fee, or I think you, to bring it back, or I think you got auto charged like the cost of the movie to your credit or debit card, whatever you had in your account. I know this is like a lot of kind of inside baseball stuff with Blockbuster that people probably don't care about, but we got on that conversation. So and then Netflix came out, and you could before it was like the actual streaming app on your tv it was you would go to the website and you would you know rent the movies from you and you could return it anytime you wanted to that's what really hurt (laughs) i used to work at tms back in years two to five of the speedway there was only one word needed to describe the infield hedonism (laughs) that's based on what i was told that uh purple buffalo's daddy lets me know the old shortstop location is now a starbucks man every Everywhere is a Starbucks. I, you know, Cameron, have you ever had Shortstop? You ever had a burger from Shortstop? I haven't. There's dude, one in 79, though. It has been, oh, man. I might have been, I honestly might have been in high school the last time I had a Shortstop burger. Uh, it's been so long, I can't even tell you what a Shortstop burger tastes like. It's been that long. But shout out to Purple Buffalo's daddy. Getting the Morse code going this morning from up in his uh, neck of the woods in Gerald. Um, all right. Uh we say, Ken, let's go ahead, because I, I need to get your take on this, too. Let's go ahead and get to the uh, Longhorn Notebook. Jeff Howe's Longhorn Notebook. So some good stuff over at Horns 24-7. We'll talk some Texas basketball later in the show. But, Ken, I want to talk Texas football, because there's a really good piece right now uh, up on the site. And uh, Chip Brown with the insider piece this morning. And, and I like the fact that uh, – Chip in these in the insider sometimes and whenever we do a long form piece, those are really good because you can get really really in depth and there's a really good piece uh, on Malik Murphy, kind of covers the fact that yeah his trainer did have colleges reaching out to him first before he actually signed with Texas when Quinn Ewers committed and then 
right around the end of spring practice and basically throughout pretty much all throughout Malik's time at Texas. But we were able to see him in the spring game, and a healthy Malik Murphy looks like he's he's going to be a factor in this thing at some point. May, probably not in in twenty twenty four in twenty twenty three, unless knock on wood, something happens to Quinn Ewers. But you know, maybe one of those scenarios, Cam, and I think uh, is this your kind of your best case scenario is that Quinn Ewers balls out this fall, goes pro, and then next spring, spring of twenty four, it's. Quinn, you, uh, I'm sorry, Malik Murphy versus Arch Manning, and the winner of that is your starting quarterback in 2024. At that point, the loser of that battle probably wouldn't be long for the program. Yeah, and I think the part of that is because it guarantees that, one, that the Texas offense improved this season. The O-line was good. Uh, the receivers were good. You didn't have a lot of drops and just kind of eh, game plans that – really were so frustrating this past season. Yeah. If Quinn Ewers has that good year and can go to the draft in the first round, then I think that means also Texas is 9-10 win, win team. I, you know, I keep bringing it up, and I'll be on with Chad and Zay today at 105, but when I was on the phone, and I'll be in studio doing it this time, but when I was on the phone with those guys last week, one of the mock drafts had come out already for 2024 and had Quinn Ewers in the first round. And Chad asked me, he said, hey, if Quinn Ewers is in the first round, what does that mean? So it probably means Texas won the Big 12, or at least at least got to Arlington, because you're going to need Quinn Ewers to be much more consistent while maintaining the – upping the level of production game to game that he had last year. Because you don't have the luxury of being able to just, in times of crisis, turn around and hand the ball to Roshan or Bijan. We talked about it on Longhorn Blitz this week. The, the the offense, whatever the ceiling for the offense is, is going to be determined really by two things. The growth of Quinn Ewers as a quarterback and really the growth of Steve Sarkeesian, not so much as a play caller, but his ability, we talked about this yesterday, his ability to make in-game adjustments and, and how he grows in that area and winning the chess match and can throughout the course of a game and when a game gets tight in the fourth quarter, are you are you giving your team a schematic advantage? That's to me where Sark has to grow. And in, in by proxy, it's going to be Quinn's growth, too. But if that happens, then that'll mean, like you said, Kim, that means the offensive line will have really come together. And regardless who's the starting quarterback, you're going to have Kelvin Banks as your left tackle in 2024. You'll probably lose J.T. Sanders after this year. You'll probably lose, like, just fit, plan on losing J.T. Sanders and losing Xavier Worthy after this year. You know Jordan Whittington's out of eligibility. So what does your receiver room look like? It could... It could look drastically different, or it could just be, hey, Jontae Cook and DeAndre Moore and Ryan Niblett, those guys get elevated, and maybe you go into the portal to get one, and boom, you're you're off and running again with some really talented guys. So I know that's projecting a lot, but I I think that is the best-case scenario for Texas. But when you look at Malik Murphy specifically, and I don't think this is a – I don't know, where are you at, Cam, on this? Because I don't think it's a holier-than-thou deal to be like, oh, man, he's staying and competing. And in this day and age of the transfer portal, you know, that really means something. So I don't I don't want to make it sound like that's a holier-than-thou deal, like, you know, where that's the whole you shouldn't get – you shouldn't you don't deserve credit for things you're supposed to do kind of deal. That's where I see that. But let's be honest, there is something redeeming about a guy that's willing to – Look at the depth chart and say, "No, I I yeah. believe in myself. I can compete." And you know what? Even if I've got to wait uh, another fall and before and it's next spring before I can compete, I'm I can be the starting quarterback at Texas. I think I feel the same way about this that Rodney Terry does about the guys he's been recruiting. We want guys who want to step in and earn it, right? And for Malik Murphy, I mean, 
for those who are saying he's going to hit the transfer portal, and Sarki even talked about it at his uh, Houston, what would you call it? Yeah, his his press conference before the uh, Touchdown Club of Houston luncheon last week. Actually, you know what, Cam? Let's go ahead and play. We haven't played this, Coach. By the way, again, big thank you to Cameron for his sacrifice and cutting all this audio that we're actually being able to, to string out a little bit and use. But, yeah, this was Sark talking about Malik Murphy. I'm not surprised. You know, I think that um, – no, I think – you know, again, and I'm going to talk more about this in here, but in my opinion, we have a great culture, and it takes time to build a culture. Culture is organic. It's not something you put up on the wall in your locker room. It doesn't. It's not something on a T-shirt to me. It is organic. It's built over time. It's built through relationships. It built. It's built through love. It's built through building people up, and the people we recruit buy into cultures like that. Malik, if you really looked at his track record when he was at Sarah High School, was not the frontline starter as a sophomore, was not always the frontline starter as a junior. They had another player there that was a quarterback too. Malik could have transferred then. He bought into being a great teammate. He bought into working with that guy. And inevitably what happened for Malik, he ends up winning a state championship his senior year. He ends up signing with the University of Texas. He's fulfilling his dreams of, of being a Division One college football quarterback and ultimately trying to pursue the NFL. So I think he has a vision and a dream for what it's going to look like for him at Texas, too. Um, but if I go recruit quarterbacks who will go to three and four or five high schools throughout their time, well, then I should worry about those guys leaving when I get them too, right? Because that's history is the best indicator of the future. And so when you look at things historically in recruiting and you really do your homework, you have an idea of what they're going to look like when you when players are on your roster. So, no, I'm not surprised by Malik. I think he's a great young man. I think he's an awesome teammate. I think he, there's a level of appreciation in the quarterback room and on our team for the work that he's done and for what he's had to overcome from an injury standpoint. And I think people are in our organization organization are generally happy for him that he's able to finally go out and play and show what he's capable of doing and I'll, I'll say this too cam i think sark deserves credit for this because i've seen way too many texas coaches be it mac brown at the end uh, even tom herman to an extent and and certainly charlie strong slash sean watson whoever was making the decisions on quarterbacks you know it's really tough to stick to your guns and say this is the kind of quarterback that I want to run my offense. I want a guy that profiles like this, that has these intangibles, but the on-field skill set looks a lot like this, and the body type looks like this, and and, and I want him to function like this. And Sark, if you look at the quarterbacks he's taken, man, whether you know Quinn, Malik, uh, you know Arch, Trey Owens in in twenty twenty four. All those guys profile the same. I mean, Sark's not recruiting dual-threat guys because the quarterback run game is never going to be a big part of his offense. It's just not. That doesn't mean he's going to recruit unathletic quarterbacks. To me, like, and for those who have heard me say this, this will sound like a broken record, people define quote-unquote dual-threat quarterbacks in a different way. My interpretation of what does it mean to be a dual-threat quarterback, can you design a legitimate run game around that quarterback? So by definition, Sam Ellinger would be a dual-threat quarterback. Shane Bouchelle would not have been a dual-threat quarterback. Tyrone Swoops, dual-threat quarterback. Uh, Malik Murphy, not a dual-threat quarterback. You can say that about Quinn Ewers. That doesn't mean they're unathletic. You're just not going to design run games around those guys. So, like, we just go through the lineage, right? Like, Mac towards the end, everything was just so discombobulated. 
and I've said this about those last three or four years with Mac at the helm, I think at some point, especially post-2010, it felt like Mac just got so consumed with, with trying to get it back on track and trying to win games that a lot of stuff that shouldn't have gotten overlooked did. And the quarterback evaluations, just nothing really lined up, right? Like You start with that 2010 recruiting class, like Connor Wood and Case McCoy, those skill sets did not line up at all. They weren't anywhere close to similar to each other. And then you take David Ash, and then you take Connor Brewer, and you look at those two guys, and they're nothing alike. And Jalen Overstreet was nothing like them. And Tyrone Swoops was nothing like those two guys. So it just got all out of whack. And Gerard Hurd's in there somewhere, even though he never played for Mac Brown. But it's just it was like you're you're just trying to recruit the best. It was kind of symbolic of that offensive identity crisis Texas went through. It's like you're you're stockpiling talent, but you're not really building a team because it seems like you're just based on whoever wins your job. You're just going to be prepared to keep changing offenses until you get it right. And we know Mac ran out of time. And then Charlie's quarterback recruiting was and it left a lot to be desired. We talk about Matthew Merrick and Kyle Loxley, and they, they got it right with Shane Bouchel. I'll give them that. And going all in on Sam, finally, they they got that one right, so I'll give them that. But he never got to see it through. And then it felt like Tom Herman was on the right track, and then at some point they just decided, no, we, we want to – focus on somebody that can just really rip it well that that's great but that's that's not what your offense is built around you, you know when Tom Herman's offense is at its best you, you've got the quarterback run game and whether it's you know a, a, a home run hitter like Braxton Miller or you've got as Tom Herman would describe him singles and doubles hitters like Sam Ellinger and JT Barrett you've got to have the quarterback run game be a part of that like honestly looking back on it Cam Quinn yours would have been a terrible fit in a Tom Herman offense like, could, could Quinn have produced at a high level? Yeah, absolutely, because he's one of those guys that with his arm talent, he's going to produce whatever offense he's in. But if you're going to line Quinn up and run quarterback power and quarterback counter, dude, that that's that's I, I, that's just a, a, a misappropriation of funds, if you will. Like, that's not how you're going to get the most out of Quinn Ewers. So it was, a, it was not an ideal fit. It could have worked, but it was not an ideal fit. Quinn fits much better with Sark's offense and Malik Murphy fits. And so you, you're starting an arch fit. You're, you're seeing the fit. That's that's half the battle, Cam. And that's why I feel like the Texas offense, as long as Sark can win the requisite number of games and keep this thing trending in such a direction that will allow him to stay off the hot seat. And I'm not talking about hot seat from Gen Pop, right? Because there's always going to be people you know, in, in the outside world that are just not happy with the head coach of Texas. There's people that don't like Sark now, and I'm not bashing those people. I'm just saying, hey, everybody's going to have their opinion. But for the people that matter, if he can stay off the hot seat for the people that ma- to the people that matter by winning a requisite number of games and keeping this thing trending in the right direction, that's why I feel good about the Texas offense because Sark knows what he wants on offense. He knows the kind of quarterbacks he wants. He's capable of landing said quarterbacks. And as long as he's got the right guy pulling the trigger, this offense has a chance to be one of the best in whatever conference Texas is in, whether it's the Big 12 or the SEC. And if you're one of the best offenses in those leagues, then you're in the mix to be one of the best offenses in the country. It seems like the blueprint for a successful program is you recruit good players. I know it's shocking. You develop them. Then you win games. And it felt like you you just went through all the quarterbacks from the end of Mac Brown to Charlie Strong to Herman. Never, I mean, Herman had a couple really good recruiting classes there, but besides that, I mean, all those guys never developed well. And maybe it goes to your point about not recruiting the type of guys that you want for your own offense instead of recruiting, well, we're going to get this dual threat guy, we're going to get this more of a, a pocket passer and try and develop. 
doesn't work well because your staff isn't designed maybe to develop all types of guys. Like, I don't know if Sark's – like, obviously Sark's got a, a really good staff, and I think A.J. Milwee is a really good quarterback developer. But as you mentioned, if they went out and recruited a, a dual-threat running quarterback, I don't know if they're going to develop in the same way yeah. that they would develop a guy like Quinn or Malik or Arch. Because we've already seen what Malik's been able to do. Maybe he was just held back from all the injuries going back to his state championship game in high school. But, I mean, it looks like he took a significant leap from – year one to year two. Yeah, and, like, I don't, you know, you look, even go, like, go back to, to SC, right? And, and Washington was a little bit different for Sart because he inherited the quarterback, specifically Jake Locker. Like, that skill set, I don't know. And the same thing when I know he was only at Alabama in 16 for that one call place for that one game. He was only there that one year. Like, Jalen Hurts isn't the kind of quarterback. And Jalen Hurts is a great quarterback. In, in if, if you kind of and we've seen the Eagles kind of cater their system to Jalen Hurts, he's a great quarterback if he's in the right system. I don't think Sark's offense, how Sark envisions offensive football, be playing. Not that he couldn't succeed with Jalen Hurts, but to what we're talking about, Cam, that wouldn't have been an ideal fit. Bryce Young, much better fit. That's why Sark went and recruited him at Bama. Much better fit for for Sark's offense. Go look at the quarterback Sark had at SC. All, all those guys, whether Sark recruited them or coached them, Carson Palmer, Matt Leinart. Matt Castle, Mark Sanchez, John David Booty, like Cody Kessler, all those guys, there's some there's they're they're all cut from the same cloth, yeah. if that makes any sense. And I just it it's really refreshing. Like I think if Texas fans, I know sometimes and, and I do this as a writer too, covering this thing, sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees, but sometimes you gotta step back and take a thirty thousand foot view of it and just think like, man, it wasn't that long ago where Ken, what would you say was – I was thinking about this. What would you say was rock bottom? And I was thinking about it, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the quarterback position in this program being a rock bottom. For you, what was rock bottom? Whether you're following it as a fan or your time in student media or now, like what what would you say would be rock bottom? Because I've got a feeling you're either you're right around the same time I am or or it's it's maybe a year off from what I, just absolute rock bottom for the quarterback position was. For the quarterback position, ooh, um – See, I, I, for overall as a program for Texas, I think the Kansas lost, but I don't know. That was rock bottom, bottom for the quarterback position. See, I think it was right after the Notre Dame game in 2015, because you didn't take yeah. a quarterback, you didn't take a transfer yeah. quarterback. Like, like year one, you had you and, and not knowing who and, your quarterback was for that. Yeah, season. and you probably should have taken a quarterback out of the. You didn't have the transfer portal at that time, but you probably should have taken a quarter transfer quarterback going into 14. But like. David Ash getting hurt and basically taking the last snap of his career in game one of the Charlie Strong era. We talk about foreshadowing. That that was ominous at the time. Losing Dom Espinosa in the same game. But then you had to go to Tyrone Swoops because you had no other choice. And they weren't going to burn Gerard Hurd's red shirt at that point because they at that time had high hopes for Gerard Hurd as a quarterback. But I think it was the following year when you realized, dude, okay, Swoops isn't the answer. After the Notre Dame game where you lose in South Bend 38-3, you're like, Swoops isn't the answer. And whether Gerard Hurd's ready or not, whether what you're going to do on offense fits him or not, you kind of have no choice but to go to the other guy. To me, that was rock bottom, and it's not necessarily an indictment on those two guys because they're both good dudes. Did you ever get to talk to either one of those guys, Cam? No. Gerard Hurd or Tyrone Swoops? Good dudes. Well, actually, I did. I I have met Tyrone before, and he, he's yeah, yeah, he's an incredible human being. Good dudes. Um, so it's not an indictment on those guys per se. It's just 
you know, the situation was what it was, and then on top of the coaching issues with you know Sean Watson running the offense the way he did, that was rock bottom. That was in 2015. I mean, we're only, you know, as far as you get to the start of the 2022 season, you know, you're only seven years removed from that. And to think where this program is coming, you, you do look. You give you give that Charlie Strong staff credit for landing Shane Bouchelle. You give them credit for finally going all in on Sam Ellinger, even though. I don't know. Sam might dispute this if he's listening, or Sam's family members might dispute this if they're listening. I always said, you know, because there, I mean, Jimbo Fisher was still recruiting Sam at the end, like Florida State was, and there was a couple other schools recruiting him. And I'm like, dude, Moncrief could be burning down, it could be burnt to the ground and be ashes. Sam would be there with a shovel to scoop it up. Like he's going to Texas. Like I, I wasn't worried about that. So I don't know if it mattered if Charlie was the coach or not, or Sean Watson or Sterling Gilbert or whatever. Um, but give those guys credit for that. You don't give Tom Herman credit for for Hudson Card and whoever you want to give him credit for, but by the time Sark got the job, the quarterback position was in a an infinitely better spot than it was. Definitely went where Charlie had it, and and even when Tom Herman took the job, you were in a really good spot. Just having Casey Thompson as as a backup for Sam that that last year was huge because throughout the entire 2010s I mean we we had so many backup quarterbacks have to play because Garrett Gilbert after his first season at Texas he wasn't on the lineup David Ash could never stay healthy you mentioned Gerard Hurd you mentioned Tyrone Swoops mm-hmm. there was never a solid backup quarterback that you trusted until Shane Buchel Sam Ellinger and mm-hmm. a lot of that was you know Buchel couldn't stay healthy and then Ellinger kind of finally took the reins over and then even going back to Sark's first year with Thompson and Hudson Card, like you've never felt good about the quarterback room, and then now here we are in 2023 going in where it's like, man, we got three five-star quarterbacks that could be starting at a lot of other D1 schools this season. When, when Charlie Strong was the coach, and even kind of late in Mac Brown's tenure, I'll borrow I'll borrow this this jargon from Rod Babers because Rod coined it, and I agree a 100%. At that point in time, pr- let's say pretty much from 20 20- – Let's call it 2013 through 2015. You were in quarterback hell at Texas. You were. Because then that's the time where the guys that you didn't recruit were winning Heisman trophies. And that's revisionist history. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now, anyway. But then you get to Shane Bouchelle, and now you get, you know, you get one, Charlie gets one year with Shane Bouchelle, then you get the Bouchelle Ellinger dynamic with Tom Herman. Now you're in quarterback purgatory. Not hell, but you're you're in kind of quarterback limbo. You're in you're in between. You're you're moving up, but you're not where you want to be. By the time Tom Herman got fired, Texas was you were pretty close to dealing with first world problems at the quarterback position. Yeah. You know, you had I mean, think about that room you had in twenty twenty. You had Sam, you had Casey as the backup, and then you had Hudson Card. Really, Andrew Quinn and Jackson as your three and four, kind of your developmental guys. And Cameron Rising, too, right? Uh, yeah, Cam Rising in 18, yeah. So that, that was the year before. Yeah, that was. That was Even having Rising. I'm talking about 20, so yeah, you got to go back to yeah. 18 where you had uh, Sam, Sam was your starter, Shane was your backup, and then you had your developmental guys at that point were Casey and Cam Rising. Yeah. So, I mean, you. It, what I, I, I tie all this back to. Your quarterback room right now with Quinn Ewers, Malik Murphy, Arch Manning, and I'll even throw Charles Wright in there if you want to. Trey Owens on the way. Ben Ballard. You're, yeah, ben Ballard's actually at FAU now. Oh, that's right. He transferred yeah. for Tom Herman. Excuse me. Um, now you're starting to deal with first-world problems at the quarterback position again. 
you're 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 ha- you're dealing with the issue you ran into like in in 2002 where it's like man i guess vince young's got a red shirt because with uh one more year of chris sims and chance mock is the backup and matt nordgren is your number three you don't really need vince young you can just let him red shirt and let him develop and to your point cam about not trusting the backup quarterback uh, when you talk about just the overall roster makeup, I think that's where Sark has gotten this thing because we talked a lot about the roster and how good it is. And I've talked to some of my colleagues on the national desk at 24-7 Sports, some of the people at CBS Sports, and whenever I get a phone call or a Slack message or a text like, hey, um, you know, what's the biggest takeaway from Texas? And I, my first my question right back is, well, what do you think it is? And like, I, it finally – and I, it, I'll, I'll give away Kevin – my good friend Kevin Flaherty, was on, I was on the phone with him yesterday. He's like – it's that watching the spring game like Texas looks like Texas is supposed to look. I'm like, yeah, that's that's the, we talked yeah. about it, right? That was the biggest takeaway I had from the spring game. Like when you look at that that roster on the hoof, it's like, yeah, that's that's how a Texas team is supposed to look, and that's a that's a, that is a tribute to Sark and how they've recruited. But now you're starting to see player development, and guess what? With some other than Kelvin Banks, who was just good enough to go play, you're not having to play freshmen anymore just because. The four-game redshirt rule has been a godsend from that standpoint, that you can get them their four games and still preserve a year. But you haven't been forced to just play freshmen, just like, oh, we have nobody else. The freshmen that are playing, the freshmen that played last year, a lot of those guys played because, well, they were the best you had. Like, whether it was DJ Campbell or Cole Hudson, one of those two guys was the best interior lineman you had. They had to play. Kelvin Banks was the second-best tackle you had. Yeah, but that's a good thing because if they're that good right off the bat, if they're playing – out of luxury and not necessity, now you get those guys on the right development track, and now by the time those guys are juniors and seniors, you should have some really good football players. So we'll take your feedback on that on the Specs text line, 337-3776. No, Texture Craig will not be on today. He is traveling to Lawrence, getting ready for the Texas-Kansas baseball series. So Craig will not be with us today. It's just Cam and I. But we'll take a break. We'll uh, continue to take your feedback on Texas football or anything else. Coming back, Inconceivable is going to close out hour number one here on Light the Tower on the Horn, live, local, and digital. On the Horn app and at hornfm.com. Inconceivable. 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 You keep using the horn. I don't think it means what you think it means. If I can get my headphones on and attempt to attempt to be a professional broadcaster today, Cam, let's start with uh, an inconceivable in the sports world. Alabama has fired uh, head baseball coach Brad Bohannon. Uh, this came this morning from a statement released by the university. Alabama Director of Athletics Greg Byrne announced that he has initiated the termination process. I, I like that they don't put firing. There's always some fancy wording they have to put behind it. Uh, for head baseball coach Brad Bohannon for, among other things, violating the standards, duties, and responsibilities expected of university employees. Bohannon has been relieved of all of his duties, and Jason Jackson will serve as the interim head coach. There will be no further comment at this time pending an ongoing review. Now, why are we Rut talking row. about the Alabama baseball coach being fired? Well, the coaching move comes just three days. After ESPN reported, quote-unquote, suspicious wagering activity surrounding Alabama baseball games played at top-ranked LSU, the Crimson Tide lost all three contests. Bohannon and two other UA baseball staffers were also sued by former player Blake Bennett for allegedly ignoring injury complaints by the freshman pitcher back in 2019. Cam, I... (laughs) 
We talk about suspicious wagering activity. This is one of the downfalls of, you know, I'm, I'm all for legalized gambling because I, I feel like, you know, from a revenue standpoint, it can, I'll, maybe I'm naive, but I feel like, hey, you, you need money to build roads or fund schools or whatever, you know, take some of that money that's going to other states and keep it in house and spread the wealth. But as, as gambling, daily fantasy, whatever it is, becomes more accessible, this is the tip of the iceberg with this stuff. Man, it used to be you had to have, be like, I don't know, tied in with the mob, like point shaving and stuff like that. Yeah. You think of it like this seedy underworld. Now, dude, all that stuff can happen on a smartphone. Yep. You got to be more smart about it. I mean, we just saw the Detroit Lions lose a few players to indefinite suspensions for betting, although it wasn't about the NFL, but betting on the NFL property. And also, how does Nick Saban feel? I mean, he wakes up every morning. He's like, all right, great. Nate Oates again. Yeah, as Stoner says on the Specs text line, yet they still have their basketball coach. Yeah, that's true. But that, either way. That's uh, why Nick Saban's so beloved at Alabama. It's like, hey, you're you're the one coach. You haven't uh, – none of your players have been implicated in a murder in murder investigations, and you haven't uh, been accused of gambling either. So, Worst thing that Nick Saban's done is uh, talk trash about Jimbo Fisher. He's got coaches over here who are violating state laws, Dude, federal laws. Yeah, so, I mean, it's gambling is one of those things like you don't, when you think, and I'm, I am I don't know if this is the case or not, right? But when you think about addiction, you think about drug addiction, you think about alcoholism, yeah. gambling is one of those things you don't think about. And then, man, you hear horror stories of people that get themselves in all kinds of debt. I mean, hundreds of thousands of seven figures worth of debt. Phil Nicholson. Dude, it's 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 tough, man. So the but do I expect the NCAA to do anything about this? No, <laughs> no. Never has been there been a more reactionary, delayed reactionary governing body than the NCAA. Uh, Cam, I'll give you producer's choice on these last two. You want uh, a woman profiting off dumpster diving, or do you want a local story? Oh, dumpster diving. A, lo- a story involving a local high school. I. I- if it's high school, we got to do it. Local high school. Let's All go. right. Uh, Dayline McCallum High School. No, nobody. nobody. Well, nobody that I know of. Let me say that. Okay. I'd like to think nobody in Austin ISD or any of our surrounding school districts has started a Satan club. Not even Gerald? Uh, they got a different kind of club than in Gerald. It's, you know, there's... Involving sheep or something? Well, there's a barn and there's siblings involved, and we'll just we'll push that on down the road and save that for later. But students and teachers at McCallum High School, Cam, they've oh, had no. to repeatedly evict an unusual category of unwanted guests. Apparently, McCallum High School is being overrun by raccoons. The recent raccoon sightings began with a dead raccoon found in a wall on March 10th, which not oh. good. I'm talking about rabies, got to be careful. And the incident was followed by a raccoon being caught in a live trap in a science classroom. Y'all over at McCallum, y'all setting up raccoon traps in science lab? Is that what y'all are doing over there? Is that is that going to be on the star test? <laughs> and it's, yeah, instead of hiring pest control. All right, guys, we're going to catch a live raccoon today. That's a good, that's a good use of time, though. Yeah. That's that's a life skill, man. You can set, set an animal trap, catch you some live game. Uh, that was caught on April 10th, and a trio of raccoons being spotted running through a hallway on April 26th. The raccoon sightings inside the school have become so frequent, 
an Instagram account called Mac Raccoon Updates was started oh to keep God. track of the visits. Uh, Noah Braun, a sophomore who wrote about the raccoons for the school's newspaper, said his research uncovered the school's long past of raccoon problems. He said, quote, there's articles you can find from the 90s and from the early 2000s, even the 2010s, talking about this. AISD officials said they're working to rid the school of its unwelcome visitors. So, hey, any McCallum alums out there, let us know on the Specs text line. Did y'all ever deal with raccoon problem at McCallum when you were a knight roaming the halls? Shout out that student. Some big J journalism as a sophomore at McCallum. Dude, he, got, right. picked, he got picked up by the UPI. That's a big there deal, man. There we go, baby. Yeah. He'll be a future student of the Moody College of Communications. There you go. Shout out to shout out to all the kids out there working on the school newspaper. Yeah. Getting after it. Uh, last cam, a Pennsylvania woman has turned dumpster diving into a lucrative business after discovering that authentic designer items are often tossed away. Veronica Taylor, 32, of Quakertown, Pennsylvania, teamed up with her friend Liz Wilson, 38, to sell the salvaged items on the auction app Whatnot on live-streamed auctions. Quote, it's really like a real-life treasure hunt, Taylor told uh, (laughs) news agency SWNS. Quote, unquote, it's fantastic. Taylor began dumpster diving with Wilson in June 2022. Initially, it started out as a hobby, something that she said was, quote, unquote, so much fun. But uh, among their finds, a Louis Vuitton wallet, designer shoes, uh, and other goodies. She said she donates most food and hygiene products to charity. Quote, you have no idea what you're going to find, and I can hang out with my best friend and make a living from finding things. Got to hustle, baby. Uh, according to uh, to Wilson, quote, I want to say we've been getting 4000 to $5,000 a month. Jeez. It's definitely not worth working a real job for. Well, I'm going to go ahead and guess since this story is out on Fox News and other outlets, I'm sure now Uncle Sam's going to want his cut of whatever you're making. So, And we're going to see some listeners maybe, maybe doing their own dumpster diving. Hey, man. My wife's grandmother, she's 77, still dumpster diving. Yeah. Finding all kinds of stuff. Maybe they'll find the, the set of the Andy Griffith show like Kramer did. <laughs> hour number one of the books. Hour number two coming up next on Light the Tower. On the Horn, live, local, and digital. On the Horn app and at hornfm.com.